Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. My name is Gretchen. And I'm Lee. And in this episode, we are going to be talking about Elagabalus, the scandalous teen Roman empress who may, in fact, have been Rome's first empress. First empress. And a foreign one at that, a non-native Roman. We do have to give a little shout out to Sarah Prager, who wrote Queer There and Everywhere. We will link to our interview with Sarah in our show notes. Utterly delightful, but we just loved the title for her entry on Elagabalus so much that we made it the title of this episode because it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. The Real Housewife of Rome is very apt for a a young uh, <laughs> emperor who wandered about as a very extravagant woman. <laughs> oh gosh, she's extra. Yeah, it's extra, good. extra. Listen yeah. all about her. Any follow-up from our last episode? Anything like that? Apologies for not having this episode out at the beginning of this month like we had expected to. We said that we were going to try to have episodes out on the first Monday of the month, but life! Woo! Yay! Things are still kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. And my apologies if you hear me coughing at all. I had a cold for a couple of weeks. I'm not sick anymore, but of course I've still got the like (laughs) lingering like... Like, sounds like I'm dying, but I'm not. So, my apologies. I'm going to try and avoid it as much as possible, but, you know. Yeah, and uh, this episode will be coming out on January 21st, which, if you are listening to it, we will have just finished the weekend of PodCon, which me, Lee, is going to. So, it's we're recording this ahead of time, so I haven't been there yet, but for the future, for anybody that I may meet at PodCon, it was wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much. I love you. I hope you enjoyed the panel and also the con, which was <laughs> really fun, I'm going to say, right now. From the past slash future. Yes, I'm very excited to hang out with a bunch of other PodCon podcast enthusiasts. Right. You're calling it. Calling it right now. It's going to be delightful. Yeah. So content warnings for this episode. There's going to be, as is pretty frequent in our episodes, discussion of sexual content. There will also be some discussion of murder. And there will also be a fair heap of misgendering, because as we will get into before we go into our social and historical context, this is a person who, from a modern lens, could be considered a transgender individual, and thus we're going to be using a certain set of pronouns, while all of the sources we reference will be using a different set of pronouns. So anytime we are using said pronouns, it will be coming from a primary source. So this is going to be a people-focused episode. So we are going to start with the social and historical context. As we do, then we will get into their bio, followed by why we think they're gay or queer, and finished with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight or cisgendered. And do we have any business announcements? Any news? 
we're going to be at TGI Fem Slash 2019. If any of you are going there, it's going to be really fun. We're going to do a live episode. We're going to be doing an episode with a special guest who is someone who won the auction offering from last TGI Fem Slash to be on a History is Gay episode. So that should be really exciting for us. So we also look forward to seeing you if you are there. Yes, absolutely. That'll be really fun. So, I believe that that is all the news we have. Lots of conventions coming up. So, without further ado, let us get into our discussion of Elagabalus. Yeah. So, we should probably start with a discussion of our sources. Roman histories are fun. And by fun, I mean very long-winded and rambling and difficult to understand comprehensively. (laughs) Right. And may not always be entirely accurate because sometimes they have a bias. And so sometimes the stories in them probably didn't happen. Historians having biases? What? No, that never happens. That doesn't happen. History is always entirely neutral. Uh, (laughs) Just kidding. So some of the stories that we will relate may be true. Some of them may not be true, but we can't always know because sometimes a story might have been created for slanderous reasons. Or sometimes created to promote someone. It's just, this is what happens with history all the time. Especially when we're dealing with somebody who was pretty universally reviled by the historians that were writing about her. Because as you will learn, her reign was very controversial. She's basically lumped in along with Caligula and Nero as one of the worst rulers of Rome ever, which is a completely unfair characterization of this delightful human. Yes, totally unfair. As you have noticed, we have been using she, her pronouns. So most of the articles and books that we used for Elagabalus use he, him, his pronouns. Most of the historians commonly think of Elagabalus as... A man who preferred female dress sometimes in kind of a scandalous way. So the preference for female dress being kind of like example of decadence or moral perversion rather than an actual representation of gender identity. So we happen to think differently. And it's a discussion that we're going to have about why it is that we think that way. But that's what we meant when we said that The sources that we're using are going to use he, him, his pronouns. We are going to be using she, her, and hers pronouns. So you'll notice that if we're ever reading from a primary source, either a primary source or an article written by even modern historians are going to be using he, him, his pronouns, but we are not. Yeah. And a lot of this is because many of the sources struggle with distinguishing between gender identity, gender role, and sexuality, which is... Something that isn't surprising because these things are really tangled up in Greco-Roman society, which again is something we're going to dive into as soon as we're done talking about this. But we do want to warn our readers about that just because some of the sources that we're using may not be the most sensitive or nuanced when it comes to discussing things like gender identity and sexuality. Yeah. And that can be frustrating. Yeah. Most tellingly, there's a lot of conflation of like gender and sexual transgressiveness and amorality yep. or decadence or perversion. There are a lot of these sources that refer to Elagabalus as perverted or the people that she surrounded herself as perverts. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise, modern people talking about ancient people who didn't fit gender and sexual norms have some lenses on whoa yay yeah. but that being said 
all of these sources do tend to concur that Elagabalus exhibited frequent cross-gender behavior and dress and the preference of the language in which she was addressed. One of the few sources that we found is a really great website called outhistory.org that uses she, her pronouns. They actually mentioned that many aspects of the stories of Elagabalus, quote, seem to go far beyond merely scandalizing an effeminate monarch and more towards showing the desperation a transgender person might well feel in an age long before any methods were found to modify her body according to her desires. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about the trials and tribulations of assigning like modern lenses such as transgender to somebody like this, but it does seem to be something that is the most appropriate to refer to this person as a woman and use she, her pronouns. Yep. That brings us into a larger discussion yes. on gender and sexuality in Rome. And this is a huge topic that we plan on eventually probably devoting at least one, if not multiple, episodes to. Mm -hmm. Especially since the Roman Empire is very long. <laughs> yes. And so attitudes shift. So this is happening in later periods, right? This is like 200 CE, second to third century CE. So Christianity hadn't yet taken over the empire. We're not at like Constantine. It's not the Holy Roman Empire yet. This is still Imperial Rome prior to Christianity. We will devote at least one, if not multiple episodes to, to totally unpacking this. But we do want to like summarize it to give you guys some context. So yeah, this is a huge topic of debate, even among classicists and anthropologists and historians. So we're going to try and keep this as brief and on point as possible. And do know that if at times it seems like we're being a bit shorthand about it, that's because otherwise this would be like a four-hour podcast. Um, <laughs> so summarizing, the first thing to know is that Roman society did not perceive a sexuality in the way that we talk about sexuality. Gender roles assigned to the sex act were more important than partner's anatomy. This is what is broadly accepted. Some scholars would even go so far as to say that the only conceived of sex in terms of gender roles and had no concept of sexuality as we talk today, meaning they didn't think in terms of attraction at all, only which role in sex one was playing at the time or which was preferred or favored. The quote-unquote male role are variously described as active or penetrator, but they amount to the same thing. The person doing the penetrating is performing what we would consider the male role and would have been gendered as male, again, regardless of their anatomy. The inverse applies to the quote-unquote female role, described as either passive or penetrated. So the person being penetrated by the quote-unquote male is gendered female, again, regardless of anatomy. Thus, discussing gender and sexuality in Rome is really different than what we would think of based on our society's views of sex and gender. Gender and sex were very much intertwined in Greco-Roman society in a way that they're not intertwined today. And one could even argue that they're inextricable from each other, that you can't really talk about gender without talking about sex and sexual preference. If someone preferred the passive role in sex, they would have been gendered as feminine in Greco-Roman society, regardless of anatomy. Thus, someone with a phallus who consistently or even exclusively preferred to take on the passive role would have been considered female or gendered as feminine. And though we have far fewer examples, someone with a vulva who preferred the active role would have been gendered male. But again, far less likely because Rome did not have high views of women. Could that possibly have anything to do with the fact that Elagabalus was disdained throughout the empire? Maybe. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah. So here's a quote 
from one of our sources. Women who penetrate with dildos or large clitorises and men who are penetrated are not seen primarily as sexual deviants, but as gender transgressors. So someone like Elagabalus, who might have preferred to take on the passive role in sex despite having a penis, is like, that's not a sexual deviancy. It's you're transgressing gender boundaries. And we saw this, too, in China as well, mm-hmm. and also in male-male customs in the Arab world. It's right. This is a common thread throughout mm-hmm. that before we started talking about queerness as identity, it was sets of behaviors that ascribed to or transgressed expected gender roles in sexual activity. Yep. So active-passive is going to be a thread that you see all over the place throughout history Mm -hmm. and even in our society where we talk about this as an identity you have different stigmas around being a penetrated versus penetrating partner right so hey we never quite escape our history do we right like there's a reason why certain gay men are called effeminate throughout history that like that is a label that they're given and typically it's because those men are presumed to prefer the passive or receptive role in the sex act so even today, even even with a gay man who might not have that preference, certain sets of behaviors are ascribed to be feminine and assumptions are made about sexual position and sexual mm-hmm. preference. It's, yeah, you're right. We can't ever really fully escape those biases that existed throughout history. Yeah. And it's interesting that it's not even like a Western lens. <laughs> no, it seems to be fairly, I wouldn't universal. say universal. Yeah. Fairly universal in the, in the places it pops up. Yeah. So that brings us to our word of the week. Yay! This week we get to premiere our lovely new jingle. We didn't have a word of the week last episode, so we didn't get to show it to you. But this is a lovely new jingle that will introduce our word of the week segment, again by our good friend, Lily Brown. So, this week's word of the week is kinaidos, or kinaidos, depending on whether you're speaking Greek or Latin. I will use the Greek, because I studied Greek more than I did Latin. Kinaidos, kinaidos, tomato, tomato. (laughs) So, kinaidos. The Greek word kinaidos is used to describe people with penises in ancient Greece and Rome who preferred to be sexually penetrated rather than take on the active role in sex. According to an article called The Feminine Kinaidos, the Kinaidos was neither a homosexual nor an ordinary man. However, all his actions are seen as socially deviant. Kinaidos was a category of person, not just an act. The word Kinaidos describes sexual deviance, also effeminate behavior, referring typically to males who most often prefer to play, quote, feminine or receptive roles in intercourse with other men. So, again, that's one of those sources that is not always super sensitive about gender and sexuality. Because even while it's saying someone who prefers the feminine role, it's using male pronouns and using male. So, anyway, (sighs) the choice of being a queer historian and trying to be accurate. Thanks, cis straight people. Thanks. So, however, Kenidos wasn't always about sexual gender role preferences. The Kinaidos would often present in a manner socially constructed as feminine. Clothing choices, vocal tone, body language, and even the way they walked would frequently conform to what Greco-Roman society perceived of as feminine. 
So this isn't just about sex act. It is even about what we would in modern times call gender presentation. Due to being in the passive role, much of Greco-Roman society would have perceived of someone described of as kinaidos in feminine terms. Women in Greco-Roman society were not given full rights as citizens. They would not have been allowed to hold office or participate in civic and political life because they weren't citizens. And in order to have any kind of power or wield any kind of influence in Roman society, you had to be a citizen of Rome. And women, as well as slaves, and as well as children, were not allowed to be Roman citizens. More often than not, someone with such preferences might end up either as a full-time paramour of a wealthy patron or, unfortunately, in sex work. Occupying the role of a male prostitute didn't place the Kinaidos outside of society. They weren't ostracized the way they would have been now. But prostitutes of all kinds provided sexual services in Greco-Roman society in a way that was appreciated and understood as being just a part of the way civilization functions. However, being in this role would have still been considered quote-unquote shameful because occupying the passive role in sex was considered less than occupying the active role because it was phallocentric. So for someone who technically could occupy the active role, to prefer the passive role was considered a, quote, volatile locus of social disorder by Roman society. So you can see why potentially having a ruler with such preferences and gender presentation that the ancient Romans might not have liked that, might have felt like chaos and disorder to have someone who they would, in some sense, prefer to present as male, given their anatomy, to actively choose to be in the passive role, choosing to be in a more subservient position. That was why they considered it, quote unquote, shameful. And again, we've seen this in other cultures. It's not uncommon for the passive recipient to be considered subordinate, in some sense, Mm -hmm. like subservient to the active participant. In written works of the time, kinaidos are frequently associated with excess and gluttony, Someone who couldn't control any of their appetites, whether it be for sex, food, or drink. Whether this is true of individuals in this role, chances are probably not. That was how society viewed them. And unfortunately, that stigma has continued. I think that's another one of those legacies of the way this has been talked about throughout the years, is that someone who's in the passive position is considered to be perverted, excessive, decadent, someone who can't control themselves. It's just one of those things that we still have to deal with today, unfortunately. Yeah, so it's really hard to parse the historians that are writing about Elagabalus Are they actually chronicling things that she did, or are they painting a picture of what she was expected to be? Right, and that's why Elagabalus, even throughout the centuries, came to be associated with, you know, amorality and excess and decadence, because the ancient world had a strong stigma against people like her, and that carried through in how she was written about. And, of course, historians and writers throughout the centuries have failed to question that perception of her, and here we are today. Mm -hmm. Yay! Yay! So yeah, back to historical context, what then is the line between an effeminate man who prefers to be penetrated by those with a phallus and a transgender woman in ancient Greece and Rome? Our society would wish for these categories to be clear-cut, but because of the conflation of sexual role and gender role in Greco-Roman society, it's not that easy. Someone with a phallus who preferred to take on the passive role in sex could have been gendered feminine, like we mentioned, and thus likely presented as feminine as well, given the society's views of sexual and gender roles. Distinguishing between sexual and gender roles, while something that reflects our current views of sexuality, doesn't accurately reflect ancient Greco-Roman views. Right. 
Which is what brings us back to our choice of using she, her, and her pronouns for Elagabalus, or at least in part, because for us, the choice came down to reflecting the ancient views as accurately as possible with how we understand them. Elagabalus existed in a role that her society would have understood as feminine, and indeed other people with similar roles and preferences were publicly referred to as women. Whether the label might have been derogatory, given Greco-Roman views of women being subordinate, it was more than just an insult. They were considered women, both by themselves and by their society, due to their sexual and gender preferences. And if that doesn't deserve to be recognized by modern conventions that our language uses to reflect that, then, you know, we don't know what does. In short, like, we're using a modern linguistic convention, the she, her, hers pronoun, to reflect our best understanding of how Elagabalus and her society would have perceived of her gender and her sexuality. It's imperfect. Maybe it's imprecise, but it's our best attempt at bridging that cultural difference. And that's why we chose to do it, because we want to reflect their perceptions of themselves as much as we possibly mm-hmm. can. That's our yeah. goal. Exactly. Yeah. Hence why when we talked about the public universal friend, right? You got yep. an entire society that's eschewing gendered pronouns. Please don't <laughs> refer to them with gendered pronouns. Right? That's as simple as that. Right? If all of Elagabalus' society and even she herself would have understood her as being feminine and a woman, like, how hard is it to, like, refer to her as a woman? <laughs> really <laughs> seems, that like, not that hard. So we wanted to briefly mention this, that Elagabalus is not the only person that Mm-hmm. There were actually other examples of what we could call trans identity in Rome. There was actually an entire group called the Galae that existed kind of on the periphery of Roman society. They were priestesses who were assigned male at birth that worshipped the goddess Sibylle or Kibylle, who was technically a Roman goddess, but worship of her was not considered Roman, which is something we will get into the question of is like, what is Roman custom and what is considered blasphemous? So this group, the Galae, as outhistory.org mentions, these women would celebrate a tarabolium, which originally meant to be the castration of a bull, was a castration ceremony where someone formally defined as male would lose their genitalia and bleed like in menstruation or childbirth, and then subsequently wear quote-unquote women's clothing and go by female names. Like other cultural practices, this was very ritualistic and had a mystical understanding of gender identity. Rome was a vast empire and culturally diverse empire, and in some respects, it can be said that a marketplace of religions existed. A, quote, male-born person with a strong cross-gender identification could potentially seek out the local Galilee temple to Sibylle and have herself castrated, both to please her goddess and also perhaps to more align with her own internal sense of gender and anatomy. So as we talk a little bit more about Elagabalus and some of the stories that are told about her, there's a really interesting conflation between not only sexual and gender role, but also specifically religion. Yep. And a lot of what people were really uncomfortable with in terms of Elagabalus's rule ended up coming down to religion, which brings us to our next section. Yes. Yes, what a great transition. So before we talk a little bit about Elagabalus's life and exploits, we want to give you a little background about the deity that Elagabalus worshipped and the way that kind of interacted with Roman religion. So, confusingly, <laughs> this is so great. The deity that Elagabalus worshipped was actually known as Elagabalus. That's actually where Elagabalus takes her name is from the deity she worshipped. Yeah, or Elgabal. Yeah. Elgabal. Yeah, So, like, Sol Invictus Elagabalus is what you'll often see on, like, inscribed on Roman coins and things, which means the most holy sun god, Elagabalus. But we are going to be using Elagabal for the deity and Elagabalus for the person because 
That way, you and we can remember who we're talking about. It goes further than that. There are so many names. I know. (laughs) So this deity was a sun god, worshipped primarily in the Syrian city of Emesa. And the name actually derives from the Semitic, because Syrian is Semitic. So distantly related to things like the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and Israel and all of those nations. So it's the Semitic Ilahagabal which means God of the Mountain. So the variant spelling of Elagabalus's name is Heliogabalus, which sometimes crops up. And that is from a confusion with the Greek deity Helios, who is the sun god. So <laughs> you've got Elagabalus, Elagau. Yeah, anyway, we're not going to be using Heliogabalus unless it is within a primary source. <laughs> we're going to use Elagabalus for the person, Elagabal for the deity. So Elagabal was likely a mountain god originally, like the Chaldean deity Gibel, meaning god of the black stone, but over time came to be conflated with the Babylonian sun god Shamash. So Elagabal was worshipped with a lot of pomp and music and dancing and food distribution. It was a very, like, party religion. Party religion. It was a lot about, like, feasts and celebrating Sort of like a Dionysus equivalent. Which, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny. Like, y'all got Bacchae. Yeah. Why Why are you freaking so much Seriously. about this? <laughs> right? Like, you've got, like, the mystery religions and the Bacchanalia, and, and yet somehow, I mean, it's xenophobia. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. It's xenophobia. It's because she came from Syria. Let's right? just be real. This isn't our party god. <laughs> we don't like it. <laughs> we have a different party god. He's a goat. Um <laughs> I, I, can we put that on a shirt? We have a different party god. Different party he's, a god. god. he's a goat. <laughs> sure. So Elagabal also didn't have a statue the way that a lot of Roman temples and things would have statues of their gods, like humanized carved statues, but rather a conical black stone. It was actually a meteorite. And this stone is known as a betel. And that's what they worshipped. Coins minted during Elagabalus's reign in Rome show this, like, conical stone. Sometimes you have, like, an eagle with wings outstretched protectively over it, which the eagle is an image that's well-known from worship of mountain deities in Syria, which is interesting. It also ends up serving as a reference to the Roman eagle, which was a symbol of royalty and imperial authority. Interestingly enough, one thing that the worship of Sibylle and Elagabal have in common is this conical black stone meteorite, because Sibylle was also worshipped in the form of a black stone meteorite, because Sibylle was also originally a Syrian deity, so it was something Mm -hmm. fairly common in Syria. So Elagabalus wasn't the first to bring knowledge of the cult of Elagabal to Rome. Increased trade between Rome and Syria during the 2nd century CE, as well as strong Roman presence within Syria, meant that the worship of this solar deity was actually fairly well known by the time Elagabalus took the throne. Dedications to Elagabal have been found as far away in the Roman Empire as what is now the city of Verden, which is in the modern-day Netherlands, and that dates to the middle of the 2nd century under the reign of Antonius Pius. So, the reign of Septimus Severus, which immediately makes me think of Harry Potter. I can't help it. <laughs> like, it just sounds like such a Harry Potter name. So Septimus Severus, who is the founder of the dynasty to which Elagabalus belongs, his reign brought even greater contact between the East and West. He studied Syrian religion and philosophy when he was in Emesa, and he even married a Syrian woman who had the same star constellation as he did, believing that that meant their marriage was ordained by God. So he had a Syrian wife. And this woman, whose name was Julia Domna, was the daughter of the high priest 
of Ilagabal in Emesa and brought the worship of Ilagabal back with her to Rome. As more and more Assyrians from her family and others came to Rome and occupied high positions, it spread even further. Caracalla, who is the son of Julia Domna and Septimus Severus, expressed his wish for a single unified religious cult in Rome under the headship of the deity Ilagabal, but he himself didn't enact such reforms during his reign from 211 to 217 CE. Gosh, the history of, like, Roman emperors is like, and then he died, and then his usurper, like, he was assassinated, and then another guy came up, and then he was assassinated. So, yeah, <laughs> Caracalla was assassinated by the Praetorian prefect Macrinus in 217, who was then made emperor. So, Julia Domna, Caracalla's mother, committed suicide, but her sister, Julia Mesa, Julia is a family name. That's why all of these women have the same, what to us is like a first name. So, Julia Mesa was allowed to keep her wealth and position in Roman society, something that Macrinus would come to rue because Mesa wanted to restore the dynasty founded by her sister and her sister's husband. So Mesa had a daughter named Julia Soamus, who had a 14-year-old child named Varius Avitus Bassianus. God, I love Latin. <laughs> that Mesa claimed was the bastard child of Caracalla, the emperor that Macrinus had murdered. So, when Macrinus was killed in 218, he had a very short reign, he was assassinated, less than a year after he became emperor, Varius was installed as the quote-unquote true successor to Caracalla, and then became known by the name Elagabalus, the name of the deity that she worshipped when she lived in her home city of Emesa, and when she became emperor, she finally fulfilled her purported father, Caracalla's wish, of unifying the Roman religion under the authority of Ilagabal. So there's a lot of religion in this. There's so much religious conflict. A lot of it really does seem to boil down to religious conflict. But this seems to have been like a family thing that they were like, we want to unify Rome under the worship of our god, not their god. Which leads us to Ilagabalus's bio. And it's going to start off with pretty much that same story that Gretchen was saying with a little bit more context and like family drama more from that lens than a religious lens so she was born in 203 ce to as we mentioned julius and sextus varius marcellus although as we mentioned above she would be purported to be a bastard child of caracalla who was actually her cousin as a private citizen she was referred to as sextus varius avitus bassianus and then when she became emperor, she actually took the name Marcus Aurelius Antinius Augustus. So these are all like title, 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 fun, fun, fun. Yep. And as we'll get into, part of that emperor name is kind of like a fuck you to Macrinus. She was actually only referred to Elagabalus after her death. So they were like, this bitch tried to bring this weird god to Rome. So we're going to call her this. Which I'm sure she would love the idea that yeah, like... she would have been happy about that. Call me by my god's name? Yeah, bitch. <laughs> Her father, Sextus Varius Marcellus, was initially a member of the Equites class, which was essentially the equestrian order. It was the Roman equivalent of knights. It literally means horsemen in Latin. Mm -hmm. um, and then he was later elevated to the rank of senator. She had at least one sibling, an unnamed elder brother. And before her elevation to emperor, as we mentioned, she was inducted into the priesthood of Elagabal in her mother's hometown of Emesa. So, like we mentioned, her rise to power is 
result of some fun coups and plots. Septimius Severus, who was a general of North African origin, in addition to studying Syrian religion and widening the opportunity for worship of Elagabal, had established a militaristic dictatorship style of leadership in Rome, which it was said to have restored order after a chaotic period following the death of Commodus, who was the son of Marcus Aurelius. One of the last five great emperors of Rome is what he was like referred to as. If you've seen Gladiator, that's yeah. actually the guy played by Joaquin Phoenix is Commodus and his dad is Marcus Aurelius. So I just read Commodus and I think of Commode. It's <laughs> like, ah, uh, yes, the toilet emperor. I mean, well, he was a little shit, so... Yeah, there you go. So while they were like, yay, we've restored order, they were also kind of like, hey, wait, this is kind of undermining traditional things like our Senate. Mm. And so Caracalla, who was Severus's successor, continued in the same vein, but he was erratic and unpredictable, and he caused uproar by widening Roman citizenship to include all free inhabitants in the empire, which... As we talked about before, Rome had very, very strict class distinctions. So there's a big no-no. But he wanted everyone to be a citizen, which is good. Which is good, but in reality, it was more for tax reasons. Yes, because if you're a citizen, you pay taxes. You want your money. We can can think that it's like, yeah, cool, equality. But really, it was more for money. Money. Woo! In 217, Caracalla was murdered by one of his own soldiers, and Macrinus, who was a commoner, came to power. Like we mentioned, he was only in power for, like, less than a year, because it didn't take long for many sections of the army to be unhappy with his leadership after he attempted a bunch of fiscal reforms, which meant they got less money. So, a plot to install Elagabalus as emperor was hatched. They claimed that she was the bastard child of Caracalla, and therefore deserving of loyalty by those who had sworn allegiance to him. And so Elagabalus's grandmother, Julia Mesa, started this rumor. And so sections of the army that were already unhappy with Macrinus' leadership rallied around them and defeated him in 218 in the Battle of Antioch. And Macrinus fled and then was like hunted down and executed before he even stepped foot back in Rome. And so declaring the victory at Antioch to be the beginning of her reign, suddenly we have this 14-year-old Varius Avitus Bassinus assuming imperial titles, Without senatorial approval, by the way. She's like, cool, I guess I'm... Guess I'm in charge now. Yeah, and they were like, well, okay, I guess so, later. They acknowledged her as emperor, they accepted the claim of her parenthood, and elevated her mother and grandmother to the rank of Auguste. So, her reign lasted from 218 to 222, and to strengthen her legitimacy, she assumed Caracalla's names, so Marcus Aurelius Antonius, upon her rise to power. As an inexperienced 14-year-old, Elagabalus was expected to essentially just be like a figurehead, to not make waves, to make respectable decisions, and allow for the realization of her grandmother's political ambitions and religious reforms. However, (laughs) Elagabalus wasn't having all that. So she quickly threw off all sentiments of Roman tradition in her reign. She wanted to do things her way, as many a teenager frequently does. (laughs) When Elagabalus and her entourage arrived in Rome in 219, her allies were given lucrative positions to the chagrin of many senators who believed that they were unworthy. Because, yeah, Romans don't like foreigners. She devalued the Roman currency. She even established a women's senate. 
So Lampridius, who is one of the sources that we've used, notes that while there had been a group of women who had met on the Quirinian Hill, it was only during certain festivals, but Elagabalus made it official, this like women's senate, and even created edicts surrounding its function and like who was supposed to do things when. She appointed Julia Mesa and Julia Suamia, so her mother and grandmother, to the senate. And their images can be found on many coins and named in many inscriptions, which is a very rare honor for women in Rome. So the Historia Augusta, which is one of the uh, more salacious chronicles of the life of Elagabalus, writes, Then, when he held his first audience with the Senate, he gave orders that his mother should be asked to come into the Senate chamber. On her arrival, she was invited to place on the consul's bench where she took part in the drafting. And Elagabalus was the only one of all the emperors under whom a woman attended the Senate just like a man, just as though she belonged to the senatorial order. Good job, Elagabalus. Who run the world? Girls. 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 Yeah. She also consistently defied Roman class distinctions. And in the Historia Augusta, it also notes that she, quote, made his freedmen, governors, and legates consuls and generals, and he brought disgrace on all offices of distinction by the appointment of base-born profligates. So, basically, she consorted with everybody who was below her level and made them important people in the government, which just reminds me of so much of, like, Imperial China, when it's like, you know, we're not so upset by the fact that you're having sex with all of these men, but more that you're just, like, giving them titles and they're not supposed to have those. Yeah, she hung out with Many people below her class level, especially sex workers and actors, and it's noted in the Historia Augusta, quote, He gathered together in a public building all the harlots from the circus, the theater, the stadium, and all other places of amusement, and from the public baths, and then delivered a speech to them, as one might to soldiers, calling them comrades, and discoursing upon various kinds of postures and debaucheries. <sighs> she also tried to appoint many of her lovers to influential positions. Hmm, sounds familiar. Yep. And it's actually alleged by many of these Roman chroniclers, like her Herodian in the Historia Augusta, that whoever she chose usually was based on the size of their privates, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. She also, like, refused to wear Roman dress. She was not a fan of the togas, and she instead wrapped herself in silk and extravagant robes. She was actually mentioned in, I think, the Historia Augusta, one of the first and only emperors who clothed herself in Chinese silk. Yep. She liked purple. It's a good color. It's also a very, like, royal color in Roman society. So yeah. you'd think they'd like it, but whatever. Jerks. Yeah. Questions of her, quote, cross-gender behavior and sexuality were also highly controversial, and we'll cover that more in detail in our Why Do We Think They're Gay section. But she also faced a lot of criticism for her supposedly eccentric behavior. And this is part of what we were talking about in terms of we don't know the validity of some of these statements. Was this a lot of slander in these sources, but I put this in here because it just makes her sound like a delightful human to be around, because she apparently would go around pranking her friends, which makes her just sound really fun. According to these histories, she had a huge collection of exotic animals, like lions and leopards and bears, and she would feed them goose livers, and they were apparently very tame and rendered harmless, but her friends didn't know this. So this uh, Historia Augusta quotes, 
When his friends became drunk, he would often shut them up and suddenly through the night let in his lions and leopards and bears in the room with themselves, and some even died from this cause. A.K.A. they basically shit their pants in fear. Some of his humbler friends, he would seat on air pillows instead of on cushions and let out the air while they were dining, so that often the diners were suddenly found under the table. I think this girl sounds like a riot. She sounds hilarious. Yeah. Oh, oh man. She was probably great at parties. Oh, yeah. Well, and she would, like, invite people to the palace and just give out presents and gifts, which made the Roman senators very upset because it's like, hey, why are you giving all these sex workers money and, like, titles and cool stuff and gifts and silver and, like, lounging on gold-draped furniture? They don't deserve it. I feel like you can just, like, hear the pearl clutching. Like, the Imperial Senate being like, <gasps> Oh my gosh, what's she doing? I think part of the reason why during her reign, Roman currency was devalued was because of the proliferation of her use of silver. Like she oh. used it with everything, which then didn't make it as valuable. Whoops. Oopsies. So yeah, she sounds delightful. She does sound delightful. One of the things I love about her is the way she just like flaunted Roman religion. So we're going to talk a little bit about one of the accusations that's lobbed against her is that she's like a blasphemer and like didn't care about the gods. The false Antonis. Yes. But the reality is she just didn't really care about the Roman gods. She was actually very religious, just not religious in a way that the Romans liked. She didn't only just like spread the worship of Ilagabal. She actually made it the official Roman religion. Many ancient writers speak of her, as we said, as a blasphemer and as godless. So is there any truth to this? The answer is no. Before she was made the emperor of Rome, she was priest to the sun god Ilagabal and brought the worship of that deity with her. When she was installed as the emperor, she was ultimately made high priest to Ilagabal. So the reputation for blasphemy that she acquired is actually due to her having deposed Jupiter as the principal deity of Rome and installing Ilagabal above Jupiter, who is the Roman equivalent of Zeus. So many later Roman historians and writers accuse her of attempting to destroy Roman religion entirely in order to only venerate her own god. But this accusation isn't true. And that, in and of itself, would have been considered blasphemy to most of the Roman society. But Elagabalus did not stop there, because she's extra. <laughs> so, according to Herodian, she actually transferred many of the most sacred relics from their various temples in Rome to the temple to Elagabal that she had built in Rome. She was initiated into the rites of the Great Mother and had the Great Mother's emblems transferred to Ilagabal's temple, as well as the shield of the Salai, which are emblems to the war god Mars. Elagabalus also sought to transfer the fire of Vesta and the Palladium, which was a statue of Minerva, the equivalent of Athena. The ordering of the Palladium especially was considered sacrilege to Rome because the statue of Minerva had been hidden from sight and was not to be moved from its place in the temple of Vesta. Nevertheless, Elagabalus not only entered the shrine and touched the statue, she tried to have it moved. <laughs> Don't touch this button. Yeah. I'm gonna touch this button. I'm going to touch it. She eventually did give up on having the Palladium removed, claiming that her god had become displeased with Nerva, which I love. It's like, Ugh, you guys don't like it. Well, my god doesn't like your god anyway. <laughs> <laughs> she's such a teenager. I know she's such a teenager. So Elagabalus also ordered that Juno, in the form of her sacred relics, must be brought up from Carthage in order to symbolically marry 
Ilagabal become the female consort to her deity. She even declared that Christians, Jews, and Samaritans in her realm must transfer all of their rights from their temples and churches to the temple dedicated to Ilagabal in Rome, attempting to basically subsume all religions in her realm under the worship of Ilagabal. Like we mentioned with her purported father Caracalla wanting to have a unified religion with Ilagabal at the head. So it wasn't so much that she was trying to like destroy the worship of other gods. She wasn't like a monotheist. Like, she wasn't, like, saying there are no other gods but Ilagabal. She just... Just mine's the best god. Yeah, mine's the best god. It was basically just, like, my god gets to be in charge of all the other gods. My god gets to be the head of the pantheon. It's very common in Semitic religions to have, like, a household picture of the gods. You have, like, the patriarch god and his consort, and then everyone else is, like, members of their household. So that was what she was trying to do, was say, like, y'all can keep your gods. It's just, like, Ilagabal gets to be the daddy god. I said it that way on purpose. <laughs> so, Ilagabal just gets to be in charge. And the placement of sacred relics and altars to other deities around Ilagabal's temple certainly points to this. Like, she's definitely not getting rid of all the other gods. She's just saying, well, all of those belong to my god. My god's in charge of them. So, Herodian gives an account of the principal festival to Ilagabal. This is just stuff I find interesting because I'm a nerd and this is my area of study was... <laughs> ancient Near Eastern history. It's very similar to the Babylonian Akitu festival, which honored the god Marduk, who was the chief god in the Babylonian pantheon. So it was celebrated in the summer where they would take a stone, the betel, and parade it around the city in a chariot that was decorated with gold and silver and gemstones. And the stone was then like paraded around the town and then it was brought to the temple that Elagabalus had built on the Palatine Hill and it was installed in the temple as a way of installing the god king on his throne for the new year. Like, it was a new year festival that would be, like, installing the king on his throne, and he's, you know, king over the new year, just as he is every year, and it was a very common thing to do. According to Herodian, a six-horse chariot carried the divinity, the horses huge and flawlessly white, with expensive gold fittings and rich ornaments. No one held the reins, and no one rode in the chariot. The vehicle was escorted as if the god himself were the charioteer. Elagabalus ran backwards in front of the chariot, facing the god and holding the horse's reins. He made the whole journey in this reverse fashion, looking up into the face of his god. The god is on the chariot, and then Elagabalus is, like, running backwards through the town, staring up at her god. She would also frequently do any sort of charioteering naked, according to these histories. Oh, yeah, sometimes dressed up as Venus. Yeah, super fun. I mean, undressed as Venus, not dressed up as Venus. Yeah. Venus is naked, so yeah, undressed as Venus. Every morning, Elagabalus would perform the ecstatic rituals that celebrated Elagabal. She would dress in, as we said, these expensive, like, silk robes, and they were specifically cut in the Syrian style rather than the Roman toga. And she would sing and dance and be accompanied by all these other dancing women. The Senate and the Equestrian Order were obligated to be present. So they had to watch her do her dancing to her god. The entrails of sacrificed animals and spices were carried by important officials who were obligated to also wear Syrian dress. From her perspective, she probably believed she was honoring them because she was giving them pride of place in the worship of her deity. But such a vivid display of non-Roman culture, dress, and worship, they probably didn't feel very honored by it. They probably felt very uncomfortable with it. (laughs) Dio, who is one of the more antagonistic chroniclers of Elagabalus, mentions that Elagabalus was circumcised and ordered other followers to do the same. Dio also mentions that Elagabalus abstained from pork 
and that the worship of the deity Ilagabal included things like amulets, chanting in Syrian, animal sacrifices, all of which he and many of the Romans found what they called distasteful and barbaric, especially because the animals were kept close to the palace. But for anyone who knows anything about any kind of ancient Near Eastern religion, like, this is just normal. Like, Elagabalus isn't doing anything, like, objectively offensive. Elagabalus is literally just worshipping her god the way her people and culture have always worshipped. The Romans just didn't like it because it was not the way they did things. Because for Dio, like, the Roman emperor ought to, like, stand for Rome and Roman culture and Roman religion and Roman virtue and Rome, Rome, Rome. And Elagabalus seemed to revel in her own ethnicity no religious heritage. She wanted to do things the way her culture did. So instead of conforming to Roman society, she preserved her religious and ethnic traditions, even though she's the emperor. And according to the Roman elite ought to stand for Rome, she was like, nah, I like my stuff though. I like the way my people do it. And I'm going to make it the official religion and y'all can suck it if you don't like it. <laughs> Dio also claimed that Elagabalus castrated herself and prostituted herself. And he looked down on these things that he considered to be effeminate and feminine behavior. But as we mentioned, self-castration and cult prostitution could have been a part of the worship of Elagabal, the way that they were part of the worship of the god Sibylle. So they could have been acts of purification and fertility as a part of worship. They could also have been sexual preferences and gender identity, or they could have been both. Chances are it's a very complicated mixture of all of these things. But regardless of what it was, the Romans didn't like it. Yeah. Dio actually went so far as to accuse Elagabalus of child sacrifice, saying that she would sacrifice pretty, noble young boys so that priests could study their entrails because that makes sense. It was a pretty common accusation from Roman historians and rhetoricians lobbied against non-Roman religions, including Christianity and Judaism and devotees to the deity Isis. So it's not like ours. We're going to spread rumors that it's barbaric and etc. We don't like it. They must kill kids. Yeah. And also like, In these cultures and in these religions, and in Syria, anyone could become a priest. Mm -hmm. But you have Rome, where priests are of noble birth, and they combined their priestly duties with political and civic roles, and we have to go by this distinct class division. So this culture class also upset a lot of the Roman officials, because they took offense that all of these non-nobles are being given important religious roles. They should have been reserved for people who were born of a certain class and more worthy. Mm -hmm. Yep. So... In our opinion, far from being venal or amoral or ungodly, as a lot of the ancient sources depict, Elagabalus merely followed a different kind of godliness. The cult of Elagabal celebrated with feasting and dancing, which Romans took as gluttony and impropriety. The cult of Elagabal and other Syrian religions also followed a different calendar and celebration pattern than Roman cults did. As high priest, Elagabalus would have been focused on following the daily rituals associated with her religion, as these were considered a means of ensuring prosperity and fertility to her empire. Her god came first, state affairs second. To the Romans, this would have appeared backward, frivolous, and like a lack of concern for the state. But really, it was just... In Syrian worship, a godly king or a godly ruler of any kind meant that the empire would be in good order. So, Elagabalus was following her own culture's views of what was necessary in order to be a good ruler, which was, I gotta get all the religious rituals right, because that's what my culture says it means to be a good emperor. And the Romans are like, we don't do things like that. You must just like parties. That's not how we do this here. Yes. 
So that brings us to basically the fall of her reign and her death. So unsurprisingly, Elagabalus's actions, being at odds with pretty much every notion of Roman propriety, soon became a large concern, not only for her subjects, but also for her grandmother, who was trying to get some stuff done, and instead everybody's like, who the hell did we just install as emperor? (laughs) She's alienating the Senate, the army, and the Empire was beginning to regret their decision to support her, especially her eccentricities in relationship with a male charioteer that we'll get into, and her religious actions caused support to heavily wane. Julia Semius convinced Elagabalus to adopt her cousin, Alexander as her heir and give him the title of Caesar, making it so that Elagabalus would essentially share the consulship with him. Alexander was considered a more palatable Roman. He was carefully reared in traditional and conservative Greco-Roman values, and they really tried to make sure that he wasn't quote-unquote corrupted by Elagabalus. And after this happened, Elagabalus realized her mistake in allowing this to happen, because she essentially just made herself disposable. She feared that the Praetorian Guard preferred Alexander to herself. She feared that this more conventional Roman was going to be more popular, and so she began working to depose Alexander. She commanded the Senate to take the title of Caesar away from him, and when they refused, she ended up making several failed assassination attempts on Alexander's life, after which she revoked his consulship and spread a rumor that he was near death to see how the army would react. They didn't like it. They really liked Alexander because they're like, you know, this stand-up guy who does all of the stuff we want him to do and is a really great figurehead for traditional Roman values. Gosh, this sounds so familiar. I know, right? The Praetorian Guard essentially demanded that Elagabalus, her mother, and Alexander appear before them in the camp. And so when they all arrived on March 11th, 222, the soldiers were, like, cheering for Alexander and were ignoring every edict from Elagabalus, which made her mad. And so she then, like, ordered their arrest and execution for insubordination, which prompted a riot. Everybody was like, okay, we're done. Yep. So a mob of soldiers summarily executed Elagabalus and her mother, and unfortunately, their bodies were mutilated and discarded. So here's a first content warning for some pretty violent imagery. So according to Dio, quote, He made an attempt to flee and would have gotten away somewhere had he not been discovered and slain at the age of 18. His mother, who embraced him and clung tightly to him, perished with him. Their heads were cut off and their bodies, after being stripped naked, were first dragged all over the city, and then the mother's body was cast aside somewhere or other, while his was thrown into the Tiber. As if to wash away the legacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not a happy ending. Nope. After her murder, many of Elagabalus's associates were also killed or deposed, including her lover Heracles, who we'll talk about. This was basically just like a campaign to completely erase her yep. from Roman history. Her edicts were reversed. The religious shrines to Elagabal were sent back to Eresa. Women were again barred from attending the Senate. And her memory was later officially damned by the Senate. So according to official history, she never existed. They really did not like her. They really did not like her. We have still, like, images of her on coins, Mm -hmm. but many of her images were actually literally physically erased in that 
many like statues of her were actually recarved with the face of Alexander. Yep. Yeah. Historia Augusta notes his name, that is to say the name Antoninus, was erased from the public records of the Senate. After his death, he was dubbed the Tepertine, the Dragged, the Filthy, and many other such names. <sighs> oh, gosh. Violent murder of a trans woman. That's not anything new. Gross. So, yeah. Content warning. But we still have some information about her. So Yes. Let's talk about the more fun things. Yes. About why we are talking about this person. Yes. So, Gretchen, why do we think they're gay? Slash queer slash trans. Slash not... Not straight. The Roman emperor. Yes. So, Elagabalus' gender identity, while complicated as we have said, does appear to fall within what we would consider to be trans identity. To us. Whether because of preference for playing the sexually passive role or presenting in ways coded as feminine to Roman society, or both, ancient writers and likely her culture and she herself would have viewed her as feminine, as a woman. We noted the cultural context above, but we should dig into Elagabalus' specific preferences. Multiple ancient sources describe Elagabalus' preference for feminine presentation and gender. Dio reports that she painted her eyes, removed her body hair, and wore wigs. Herodian describes Elagabalus, quote, with painted eyes and cheeks rouged. I, l- I like this one from Dio. When trying someone in court, he really had more or less the appearance of a man, but everywhere else he showed affectations in his actions and in the quality of his voice. He was bestowed in marriage and was termed wife, mistress, and queen. He worked with wool, sometimes wore a hairnet, and painted his eyes, daubing them with white lead and alkanet. Once, indeed, he shaved his chin and held a festival to mark the event, but after that he had the hairs plucked out so as to look more like a woman. From Historia Augusta, In the public baths he always bathed with the women, and he even treated them himself with depilatory ointment, which he applied to his own beard, and, shameful though it be to say it, in the same place where the women were treated and at the same hour. So, pubic hair, I'm assuming. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, she would apparently shave her minions' groins and then shave her beard. <laughs> Dio further reports that Elagabalus went so far as to actually seek medical aid in order to get some sort of genital reconstruction. Mm-hmm. She went around asking for someone to make her a vulva, although sources don't say whether or not she was actually able to find a doctor willing to perform such surgery. There were also other rumors about her genitalia, as is wont to happen with a lot of trans people. There were sources that said that she not only had castrated herself and given herself a circumcision, but that she had split her penis in two, whole bunch of stuff. But from the sources, Dio notes, quote, he had planned indeed to cut off his genitals altogether, but that desire was prompted solely by his effeminacy, which we mentioned before. The circumcision, which he actually carried out, was a part of the priestly requirements of Elagabal. And then, quote, he carried his lewdness to such a point that he asked the physicians to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision, promising them large sums for doing so. Yep. So Herodian also notes the use of cosmetics and other forms of enhancing her appearance to appear more feminine. The Historia Augusta notes, quote, he wished to wear also a jeweled diadem in order that his beauty might be increased and his face look more like a woman's, and in his own house he did wear one. You worked that tiara, girl. Work it. Yeah, she also apparently wore jeweled shoes. Oh. Hello, Cinderella. Yeah. She just wanted all the bling. Yeah, I love her. 
I love that. Like, I love this, like, emperor just, like, wandering around. This empress, like, wearing this tiara. Yes. I love I love her. <laughs> tiara and jeweled shoes and her purple silk. Go mm-hmm. for it, girl. You rock it. Mm-hmm. Lampridius's Life of Heliogabalus notes that Heliogabalus liked to perform as female characters. As we mentioned, one of her favorite roles being that of Venus in erotic poses, like being naked in a chariot surrounded by other women and drawn through the city. That was apparently something that she liked to do, which, I mean, if you can, why not? She also preferred to be referred to using feminine monikers. So when an athlete named Zodicus, who would become her lover, and we'll talk about him a little bit later, when he met her in the court and addressed her with the usual salutation that was expected, which was, my lord, emperor, hail, Elagabalus, according to Dio, here using masculine pronouns, quote, bent his neck to assume a ravishing feminine pose and turning his eyes upon him, him being Zodicus, with a melting gaze, answered without hesitation, call me not lord, for I am a lady. They then retired to a bath together. I mean, that, like, that gets as, you know, <laughs> like, that's as clear cut as we can get. Right. We have historical sources right. from chroniclers at the time saying that this person said, call me not lord, for I am a lady. Yep. Come on. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In the Historia Augusta, it says, quote, he once harnessed lions to his chariot and called himself the Great Mother. Same. Yeah. <laughs> which which is one of the deities worshipped in Rome. So the irony being that, like, Elagabalus wanted to be referred to by the female deity and then ends up being named after a male deity is just like, oh, come on, guys. Like, she clearly said she's the great mother. Yeah misogyny at work. Right. So all that to say, while we are cautious about labels like transgender for ancient peoples, given the differences between their views of gender and our own, we do feel confident that using female pronouns and referring to her as a woman, as a transgendered woman, is as close an approximation as we can get to reflecting her experiences in our own language as the cultural differences allow. Especially those last couple of quotes is like, we feel very confident that this is more than just cross-dressing or even... Flaming gay man. Right. Like, this is someone who wanted to be referred to as a woman and told people to use female monikers for them. Mm-hmm. So, Dio also notes that Elagabalus played the passive role in soliciting sex in the Imperial Palace, which is a role that Dio considered to be prostitution and shameful, and claimed that Elagabalus was paid for acting in this way. Quote, he would go to the taverns by night wearing a wig, and there ply the trade of a female huckster. He set aside a room in the palace and there committed his indecencies, always standing nude at the door of the room, as the harlots do, and shaking the curtain which hung from gold rings, while in a soft and melting voice he solicited the passers-by. But do bear in mind that the accusation of prostitution could be slander, given Dio didn't really like Elagabalus all that much. And as well as the strong association between people in that society, the Kenidos that we mentioned earlier, and prostitution. However, it could be that prostitution was a part of the worship of Ilagabal, as we noted. It could have been a ritual or cultic function. Or that Dio merely misunderstood and misrepresented Ilagabalus' religious acts of devotion as a sign of depravity. Or girl just liked to have sex. Like, yeah. And that, like, any or all of these are possibilities. So... It's complicated. Just because a historian is like, well, clearly this person was indecent and acted like a sex worker. is like, well, one, that's not really a bad thing. Like, shouldn't be a stigma if that's what you enjoy and that's your choice if you want to be a sex worker. And also, that may or may not be what actually happened. Yeah. There's one source that we used. It's an article from the Good Men Project. The author actually... 
in sort of summarizing the view of Ilagabalus, as by Cassius Dio and others, says, quote, the most powerful empire in the Western Hemisphere was being ruled by a submissive sadomasochistic slut. <laughs> so there you go. Can I have that on a, can I have a button with like a little laurel? Oh, yes. For like the emperor, like the little laurel weave, and it just says like sadistic sadomasochistic slut. I would proudly wear that button. Yeah. That brings us to the question of Ilagabalus's sexuality, which is not any less complicated. Nope. Uh, she married and divorced multiple women, though none of the marriages resulted in any children. A couple of the other sources say that she never had sexual intercourse with a woman more than once, continuing to ingrain in readers of these histories her prolific nature. Mm-hmm. So... Her first wife was Julia Cornelia Paula, a member of Roman aristocracy. They were married for a year before she divorced her to marry her second wife, which was the big controversy. <laughs> if you want to talk about that, Gretchen. Yes, this makes me so excited. <laughs> so she married a vestal virgin, Aquilia Severa. So the marriage was considered highly scandalous because Aquilia was still a vestal virgin at the time of their wedding. And vestal virgins made a vow of celibacy for 30 years. And the consequence for breaking the vow was being buried alive. So it was a pretty big deal to be a Vestal Virgin, and you do not break your vow of celibacy if you're a Vestal Virgin. So it is believed by many that this was primarily a religious union. So by marrying Aquilia, Elagabalus was representing the symbolic marriage of Elagabal to the deity Vesta. Both the human and the symbolic marriage were soon revoked, and Elagabalus was convinced to marry her third wife. Who was Ania Aurelia Faustina, another Roman noble, a wealthy heiress, and a descendant of Marcus Aurelius. So with two children from her previous marriage, Elagabalus had recently had her husband executed for treason. It was hoped that she would bear Elagabalus an heir, but she didn't. At the end of the year 221, Elagabalus divorced her and returned to Aquilia Severa, who then became her fourth wife after Elagabalus declared the previous divorce was invalid. It's believed that Aquilia stayed as Elagabalus' wife until the emperor was assassinated in 222 CE. She had multiple marriages at the same times. All of our fun poly friends. Yay! So, Elagabalus also had multiple relationships with men. According to Cassius Dio, the most stable relationship in Elagabalus' life was with her chariot driver, Hierocles, who she insisted be referred to as the Empress's husband. Dio notes that Elagabalus was, quote, delighted to be called the mistress, the wife, the queen of Hierocles. In the Historia Augusta, there is talk of the rumor that she wanted to be known for adultery, so she would go out and she would cheat on Hierocles, and then Hierocles would beat her, but that made her love him more. Because she was sado- sadomasochistic. So I guess that's where that comes from. Submissive slut. Yeah. There was like literally a quote. But not only did Elagabalus cheat on her husband, she seemed to delight in being caught in the act and to be proud of the black eyes and bruises that resulted from her possessive partner's beatings. Paraphrased from the Good Men Project, because I'm not going to go back into the histories and find the exact quote. That's absolutely fair. Yeah. In many of these sources from antiquity, like we mentioned, they describe Elagabalus as having preference specifically for men with large phalluses and would appoint them to political positions due to such. The Historia Augusta notes, quote, and to other posts of distinction, he advanced men whose sole recommendation was the enormous size of their privates. She liked him big. Yeah. One example of this was 
Zodicus. So, the athlete from Smyrna named Aurelius Zodicus. He was well known for uh, being very well endowed. He had he had huge tracts of land. <laughs> According to the Historia Augusta. Quote, this Aurelius not only had a body that was beautiful all over, seeing that he was an athlete, but in particular, he greatly surpassed all others in the size of his private parts. This fact was reported to the emperor by those who were on the lookout for such things, and the man was suddenly whisked away from the games and brought to Rome, accompanied by an immense escort. She had a team of people to slake her thirst, to go out and find well-hung men to slake her thirst. She's great. So my favorite part about this entire story is that after Elagabalus and Zodicus retired to the bath together on the day that he arrived at the court, uh, Hierocles got real jealous, and he ended up drugging Zodicus's drink to make sure that he couldn't get an erection, which then made him useless to Elagabalus. Quote, Then Elagabalus immediately joined him in the bath, and finding him, when stripped to be equal to his reputation, burned with even greater lust, reclined on his breast, and took dinner like some loved mistress in his bosom. But Hierocles, fearing that Zodicus would captivate the emperor more completely than he himself could, and that he might therefore suffer some terrible fate at his hands, as often happens in the case of rival lovers, caused the cupbearers, who were well disposed toward him, to administer a drug that abated the other's manly prowess. And so Zodicus, after a whole night of embarrassment, being unable to secure an erection, was deprived of all the honors that he had received, and was driven out of the palace, out of Rome, and later out of the rest of Italy. And this saved his life. So he was basically completely exiled because he couldn't get it up. This exile didn't last, however, and Elagabalus and Zodicus were later married in a very public ceremony in Rome. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as you can see, it's complicated. It is very possible that her relationships with her wives were purely political and that she had no sexual relationships or what we would call attraction to them. However, it is also possible that she had sexual and or romantic relationships with both men and women. So we don't actually know what her sexuality is. I find the fact that she returned to Aquilia Severa intriguing at the very least, Mm. whether that was for religious reasons or not. She wanted one of her wives back for whatever reason. So we can't really put a label on it. We we do know that she liked well-endowed men Mm -hmm. and may or may not have liked women too. We don't know that part. But she married four of them. So there you go. So yeah, one last thing we wanted to go into before we kind of get into our other segments here is just a little bit of analysis. Historian Bill Thayer, who is one of the translators for the Historia Augusta, notes that much of the criticism of Elagabalus's same-sex behavior, quote-unquote, comes from the fact that, like we discussed, she was taking a passive role. And I thought it was really interesting that he specifically goes into the specifics of the Latin language being used talking about that. He notes, quote, The Latin text has neither unnatural or vice, though it's plain it might as well have. What it does have is a clearer statement of just what Elagabalus was doing, quote, and being penetrated by men and sodomizing them in turn. Similarly, in the next sentence, quote, who indulged in unnatural lusts of every kind, which was the English translation, actually reads in the Latin, quote, who received lust in all of the orifices of his body. So again, just circling back around to the idea of like, it was the fact that she was in a submissive, receptive, penetrative role. Yep. So yeah, that seems to have been one of the major sticking points in the behavior is not necessarily being in a relationship with someone that we might consider to be of same sex or same gender based purely on anatomy. It was being in the passive role. So 
Fun segment. Pop culture tie-in. For someone that most of us have never heard of, Elagabalus actually has quite the pop culture presence, we discovered. So she became something of an anti-hero in the decadent movement of the 19th century, which we talked about a little bit when we talked about Oscar Wilde. So it was a movement centered in Western Europe that focused on the aesthetics of excess. So she often appears as the epitome of what have been male young, amoral, aesthete, and has been connected more recently in pop culture to anarchist or even anti-establishment ideologies. The focus has shifted from pleasure to she did what she wanted. She's an anarchist. She's anti-establishment. She defied the Romans. Like, that's become kind of the more recent modern view of Elagabalus as this kind of, like, anarchist hero. There are several novels and a couple of dances. (laughs) There's a play called Heliogabalus, A Buffoonery in Three Acts that was written in 1919. You can read the whole thing on Wikisource and we'll link that. What's funny about that play is that, of course, Heliogabalus is depicted as male and as like a thousand and one Arabian nights, like (laughs) sleeps with a different woman every night (laughs) and like finally meets this Christian woman who like refuses to give in to like seductions and that's like fascinating. But then eventually the end of the play is like, Eh, that's boring. I'm going to go back to partying. Relatable. Yeah, right? There are a couple of other plays that have been written since 2000. There is a 17th century opera Mm -hmm. about her. There's one from the 19th century. This is the one that I thought was super random. Like, super random. Marilyn Manson. The album, The Pale Emperor. Marilyn Manson's The Pale Emperor album is actually inspired by Elagabalus. Specifically the book Heliogabalus or the Anarchist Crowned by Antonin Artaud, which was written in 1934. I was just like... There you go. Never thought I would see, like, a random Roman emperor in Marilyn Manson. But, yeah, it's fitting. The kind of anarchist connection. Yeah, anarchist connection and the androgyny and... A lot of the performativity of Marilyn Manson. Yep. There are a couple of paintings that we'll put up on our show notes. One by Pre-Raphaelite painter Simeon Solomon and one by Lawrence Alma Tadema. They're both from the 19th century. One of them actually depicts a random story that we didn't have time to get into in the episode, but we will mention that when we put the links up about filling pools with flower petals. Yeah, and like perfumery and alcohol and drinking from her own pools. There's a lot of rumors and a lot of tales about her excess and her extravagance that we didn't have time to go into, but you can read them all. In our sources, there is the entire text of these histories that we're just going to share with y'all. You don't have to go anywhere and pay money for them. Yay! Yay! Oh, wait, we had our last one that apparently in Spanish, the word heliogabalo means someone overwhelmed by gluttony. (sighs) So there you go. Yeah, that brings us to how gay were they? How gay was Elagabalus? Oh, wow. I guess it depends on what we mean by gay in this instance. So in terms of like sexuality, meh, she definitely seems to have a thing for the well-endowed men. So I guess it's possible she could have had a romantic relationship with one of her eyes. So I'd say like in terms of like preference for partners using our modern notions of preference for the gender of partners i'd probably put her at like a two out of ten she definitely seems like she was into dudes so like a two out of ten jeweled slippers in terms of gender identity like to me she's like a clear 10 out of 10 jeweled slippered trans woman like i have zero doubts that if she existed in our society today that's what she would want to be called yeah If you go around the empire begging surgeons to make you a vulva, 
there's something more than just assuming a submissive, quote-unquote, feminine role in the act of sex. Right. Yeah, so I'd agree with you. In the terms of her sexuality, I'd say, yeah, like a two or a three. I'm gonna go with... For her gender, though, and I think just in terms of bucking tradition, Mm. I want to go with 12 out of 10 lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's so interesting that her expression of gender and sexuality and extravagance and religion are all tied up together and are all so outside of the Roman norm. Yes. And so... The very fact that she was following the edicts of her own belief and how that that intertwined with her own presentation is really fascinating. Yep. Also, just not only was she asking surgeons to change her body, but she was completely and utterly ecstatic about her life and her presentation. There's nothing to say that any of this was out of the norm for her. You know, a beautiful, well-hung man comes up to her and says... Hail, Emperor, and she literally in the text says, without hesitation, call me not Lord, for I am a lady. And that says everything to me. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and it feels like such a queer thing to do to buck so much conventionality in like multiple ways. Her gender presentation, her sexual preferences, her religion, like her preference for her own customs and ethnicity and creating a woman's senate. (laughs) The edicts that she made... It went beyond her own presentation. Like, she she was actively seeking ways to promote women, to create more space and equality for women. Which, to me, speaks to the fact that it comes from a place of, this is who I am. This is what mm-hmm. I would want. Like, I am a woman who is an emperor. I want my mother and grandmother to be honored as well. I want them to have a place at the table the way I have a place at the table. I want to create a space for women to be in the political realm. I want to make friends with the people that my society doesn't care about and has shut out of power. And I want to give those people honors and promote them. Like, all of that, to me, speaks from a very queer place. Like, being friends with sex workers and actors. You know, the people that, like, Roman society is like, we don't like them. She's like, they're my friends, though. And we're gonna hang out and party. The Romans not liking someone who hung out with sex workers and then executed them. Where have we heard that story before? Oh my gosh, she's Jesus. Oh my god, she's Jesus. She's like, she's trans. She's fabulous Jesus. Yes, she's the real housewife Jesus. (laughs) The Jesus housewife of Rome. The Jesus housewife of Rome. (laughs) I think uh, with that, that's a good place as any. If hell is real, I've been going to hell for a long time. But the things that come out of my mouth sometimes, I'm sure. But whatever, I don't care. It's fun. Hey, look, we started this podcast talking about Jesus's vagina. We're good. Right? Seriously. (laughs) And also, Elagabalus was called a blasphemer. So I'm in good company hanging out with her. I want to be her friend. (laughs) So with that, that is it for today's episode. You can find your gracious hosts upon the internet individually. Gretchen, where can people talk to you? Well, when I am not talking about Semitic, transgender, possibly bisexual Roman emperors who bucked convention, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over queer novels, Steven Universe, and A Song of Ice and Fire for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, 
GNEllis.com. Or you can find me on Twitter as at GNEllisWriter. I use the same handle on Tumblr, but I'm barely on it anymore for many reasons. But there's not really a whole lot happening on Tumblr anymore. But you can still find me. You just probably won't get much. No more female presenting nipples. So my Song of Ice and Fire video essays and theories can also be found on YouTube under my Twitteros name, which is Baal the Bard. What about you, Lee? So when I am not nerding out about old-timey queer emperors who pranked her friends with lions and tigers and bears, which just makes me so happy, or I'm sorry, lions, leopards, and bears, and pranced around Rome wearing jeweled tiaras and running around after well-endowed men. I am usually talking about comics and queer TV and representation over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter, going around to conventions and editing podcasts. Yay. Also crying about Xena episodes on my couch. We're going to talk about Greco-Roman things. Do you got to plug Xena? <laughs> yeah, I got to plug some Xena. <laughs> so History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History's Gay Podcast, Twitter at History's Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi over at History's Gay Podcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can, as always, support us on Patreon, where you can get access to our Sappho Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks. We just put up the fuck colonialism jingle as yes. something you can download and turn into a ringtone yes, or play whenever some shitty person is saying some shitty colonialist thing. Just slap it right in their face. Oh my gosh, I need to do that. You can also have the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show and more. There are a lot of really really fun things that can happen being a part of the Patreon community. If you want to be a part of that, you can become a patron by going to the support section on our website, or you can just go straight to patreon.com slash history is gay and join the ranks of our patron community along with the amazing Noah Williams, who is our, our featured patron this episode. Thank you so much for all of your support. Again, as we say every episode, we couldn't do this without you. Literally, this is helping us to get our sources and pay for all of the costs that come along with making a show like this. Also do things to help get us to conventions. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. I logged into JSTOR to do research for this and I was like, it's so nice that I can just yeah. log into JSTOR and look for some articles on Elagabalus. Isn't this delightful? This is great. So yeah, you yeah. guys allow me to, in one of the most nerdy things that had ever come out of my mouth, which is saying a lot. I say a lot of really nerdy things. I was super <laughs> excited to log into JSTOR from my couch. So I know. That's like one of the things that I miss so much about being a student is having access to that. And lo and behold, thank you, friends. We have access. Yay. I can be in my PJs on JSTOR. It's great. Yeah. You don't have to go all the way to the university. No. I feel just like I'm in college wearing my PJs, logging onto JSTOR. You can also buy some really awesome merch at the History is Gay store. You can click on shop at our website. We've got t-shirts, tanks. We have mugs now. We have History is Gay mugs, which is really exciting. We've got tote bags and all of these things should be available for sale both online and if you're coming to any of our convention appearances in the future, we'll be bringing some of those along as well. Yep. So lastly, remember, please, if you have the time to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, it helps people to find the show and we can expand our awesome community and reach more people. So that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Stay curious.